Well, we're about to launch, we're about to initiate, we're about to move the ship out into the waters of our, our, our exploration, our journey into the book of Genesis. Oh, what a fantastic response. Good job, everybody. The book of Genesis. What is Genesis? Yeah, I know. I know. If, I, if I leave a question sitting there, it's, we don't know it's this rhetorical. Uh, now, I said this last night, and I, and I really thought, well, we'll see what happens today. Because when, when I hear myself say, what is Genesis? It's almost, there's almost a William Shatner over-actor there. And I hear, thank you, that there's, a, there's this wrath of Khan starts coming up in my, what is Genesis? Uh, but Genesis is, well, first of all, if you hold your Bible in your hand or your Bible tablet or your phone or whatever you got, Genesis is the first book in your Bible. If you don't know that, then there's the truth. There you can find it. But uh, Genesis is our origin story. It is the origin of the cosmos. It is the origin of life. In Genesis, we find the origin of life, but not just life, but of humanity. But as we continue in Genesis, we'll see that we, we see in Genesis the origin of marriage and family and relationships and conflict and nations and industry and art and religion and crime and sin and punishment and death. All of it, all, every. Really, every institution, every idea, every, every pillar and mountain of humanity begins in Genesis. Genesis is the story of, of how. Genesis tells us what happened. It tells us why. It, it, it explains why, does it, why it matters. Genesis helps us answer the question, where have we come from and where are we going? And almost most importantly, who is in charge? Now, there are, there are things that Genesis is and things that it is not. Genesis is not a physics textbook. Genesis is not even really a history book. Oh, it certainly occurs in the context of history. It certainly contains history, but it's not intended to delineate and to compartmentalize and to, and to, and to organize and lay out specifics of history or some sort of comprehensive history. It's not meant to be a science book. It's not meant to be all of the things that folks often force upon it. If we want to understand the, the, the purpose of Genesis, we need to remember Dr. Dabbs' AAA method of Bible interpretation which is audience agenda, audience of our author, audience agenda. Dr. Dav needs to remember Dr. Dav's. Okay, so author, audience, agenda. We need to say who, who wrote this, who, who was listening, and, and what was the agenda behind it. And when we do that, we begin to read Genesis with a, with a fresh lens, and we stop trying to fuss and fight about because some of you might be saying, well, bless God, he's going to tell us whether or not it was a literal seven days. I'm no more going to answer that than I was going that I answered whether or not it's Putin in Revelation. Right. <laughs> I that Putin. 
want you to think about being a people who for generations, for 400 years, all you knew was bondage, slavery, and, a, and an oppressive, pantheistic world. A world where there were many gods in competition with one another, weak, insecure, angry, where mankind served their needs and they oppressed and harassed them and they, con- and they, were, con- they were confusing and they were weak and they competed against the forces of nature. And yet, and yet in your family time, in your own home, around the, around the fire or around the, the dinner table, you, there, there would be hints and stories of a different God. So your family had a tradition of something and someone, stories that you told, but you were surrounded by confusion, corruption, perversion. And then imagine reading, hearing that there is one God and that he created it all and that man is not God's enemy but rather God's image. Imagine you are a people living in Babylon, in exile, having lost your, your homeland and your, and your family and your traditions, having been exiled from the land of Judah. You find yourself once again, hundreds of years later, in a strange land with pantheistic religions, gods everywhere, idols everywhere, paganism, corruption everywhere. And you'll wonder what happened and, what's, and is there any hope? But you can open up a text and remember that there is one God who rules over all. And this is his story, that history is his story. Or those who returned from the exile and were starting over, they, they, they can know that there's a God who is the God of beginnings. The God who rules over all. That nothing is impossible. Nothing is outside of his power. Or a, or a people living under Roman rule, or any believer who has ever asked, where have we come from and where are we going and who is in charge? This is the lens that we bring to the book of Genesis. As we open the book, as we open the text, the, the very first verses, <laughs> I, I, I have the, the rare and deep privilege of... Uh, of, of uh, being the, the New Testament guy and the Old Testament guy at, at, our, at our college uh, in, our, at, in Salem, meaning I, I'm responsible for the, the survey of the Old Testament and the survey of the New Testament. And one of the things that I like to try to press on my Old Testament students is to ask them, if it, is there a more important cha- a book in the Bible than Genesis? Is there, more, is there a more important one? And then is there a more important chapter than the first one? And is there a more important verse than the first? See, every verse as we open up this book, because it's the beginning, it's, there's fresh fallen snow. Every, every word that we read lands with a thunder and an echo, and it echoes throughout history. And every, every verse that we read sets something in motion. It sets something in motion that is true, something that should be. What we see as we open up the book of Genesis and in chapter, chapter 1 is this, that creation is God's desire and God's design. 
Creation is a work of his power and of his purpose. It is his providence and his plan. We see God's preference at work, his will at work. We need to understand and believe that Genesis 1 has never not been the will of God. So if you have your Bible or your Bible device, let's take our, let's be patient enough to honor the text. I'm going to be reading to you from the New American Standard, which has an update last year. One of the great things that happened last year is a, an update in the New American Standard. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so... As you're reading, pay, try to pay attention to what you hear repeated, what emphases are happening in the text. So far, we should be paying attention that what we're hearing at least seven times is, and God said, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. And then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the gathering waters he called seas. Notice that he, he it's, this is cool. Pay attention to this. He gives a name to stuff, night, day, land, sea. Yeah. But also, spoiler alert, pay attention to what he does not name. It's cool. I'll tell you later. <laughs> then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit and trees on, and on the earth bearing fruit according to their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth produced vegetation, pl uh, plants yielding seeds according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. Have we heard that yet? Yeah. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and they shall serve as signs and for seasons and for days and years. And they shall serve as lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. What's the purpose of these lights in the skies? Yeah, to serve as signs and to give light on earth. And it was so. Verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. 
And and if you look in your Bible, you'll see your, your Bible might have I, I, some words italicized, which means they aren't they aren't uh, present. They are they are they are they are uh, inserted into the text to to make it flow to for interpretation. So it, it, it the literal is this: the stars also, like an afterthought. What hasn't he named? He hasn't named the stars. Well, let's keep going. Uh, then God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light uh, to on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning a fourth day. He, you might say, silly, uninformed, stupid author of Genesis doesn't even know what the sun and the moon is. Didn't even He called it earth, called it seas, but he just said, light, big light, small light, moving on. Why was he, what's, the, what's going on here? Moving on. Well, at least one thing, and there's more to it later, but at least one thing is this, is that, remember, who's reading this are people who are surrounded by Egyptian and Canaanite pagan religion who worship deities of the sun and the moon. But the author of Genesis says they aren't even worth giving a name. They aren't deities. They serve my purpose, and my purpose is that they serve the purpose on earth. Oh my goodness, it's good, it's good. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Oh my word. Let the waters, so he's told the veg, he told the vegetation to prosper and it did. So far we've seen that, that God commands abundance and it happens. That's interesting. Let's see if there's a pattern there. Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Let there be lots of those. Someone say, already, what do we see in Genesis? This is not part of our notes, so we can just say now, God is a God of abundance. The creation reveals that God is a God of abundance. And, he, and in fact, he commands it. <laughs> Someone's got to shout me down. He commands abundance. He creates with abundance. Everything has to multiply. There's, there's no lack in creation. Oh my goodness, that's, that's exciting. Then God created great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed according to their kind and everything, every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Oh, and God is good and what he makes is good and what he intends is good. He has a, he's a good God with a good plan and his good things. Oh, it's just good. What do we see in creation? Already I'm encouraged. God is good. God makes abundant things. God commands abundance. I like all of this stuff. God bless them. God is a blesser. God bless them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Well, thank God for that. And fill the waters and the seas. No lack. He is not pleased with lack. All right. Let, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, let the, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock and crawling things and animals on the earth according to their kind. And it was so. God made the animals on the earth according to their kind, and the livestock according to their kind, and everything that crawls on the ground according to its kind. There's a pattern here that... That of something being made after its kind, and we understand what it means that if a seed bears something after its kind, <laughs> that it, it's like the thing that made it. It's, you guys know what's coming. It's like the thing that made it. 
It bears resemblance to. It owes its life to. It doesn't act like something else. Apples don't act like bananas because they're not bananas. It owe, everything owes its existence to the thing that gave it life. And God saw that it was Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Now the language changes. You've got to feel the weight. You've got to feel the wonder. You've got to feel like, so far he said, let this be, let that be, let this be, let that be. It's all third person command. Let go do that. But now he said, now let us. Ooh, now he brings it. He says, now I'm going to, he rolls up his sleeves. Now I'm going to do something. Daddy's stepping into the kitchen. Now, <laughs> Now let's listen. You got let us make mankind in our image. This has not been said before. This is a unique thing. This is the, the this is the this is the climax, the crescendo of the text. I'll talk to you about that later. Let us make man. Who do you mean? Who say now? Say who's he talking to? It's more most likely with a Hebrew mindset. They understood that God is not alone in His heavens. That He's speaking to His heavenly court, and he's, it's it's more like a massive announcement. Now, now hear this. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule <laughs> over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Now, you need to, you need to if you have a thing, circle that word 27, created, and then go back and look at verse 1 created just do that and we'll come back to it so god created man in his own image in the image oh if you're underlining things so far how many times now we've seen let, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them this is powerful these are we have to hear the the the, the intended repetition of the author and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. I'm proud of you guys for obeying this. Good job. Yeah. Okay. Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and over the birds and the sky and over everything that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed it shall be food for you and so every animal of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life i have given green plant for food and it was so verse 31 and god saw all that he had made and tada it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. That's a good response. Honestly, of all the things, the ways that we could respond to this, it's to say hallelujah. God is creator. There are three things. There are, there's a ton of things that, 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 that we could explore, that we could be whelmed by in this passage. Uh, but we are, what I want to do is try to focus on just three things this morning that I felt 
as I in, in my prayer time that I felt were germane, were pressed upon me to press upon us. Is that okay? Yeah. This is there's certainly much more that can be said, and this isn't the first time anybody's spoken from Genesis, so it, there's been a lot more said than I'm going to say. But I believe that this is what was pressed upon me. Number one, God is creator. Verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is not a more important passage in all of scripture than this. If this is not true, then God is just a participant. He is just a colleague among competitors. If God is not creator, then he is just a a lesser creation and therefore he arguably really is of no greater significance and importance than me. I may as well be God. Now, I don't mean that literally like Brian Davenport, but that is the if God is not creator, when man rejects that, man makes himself. If God is not, then I must be. Therefore, verse 1, Genesis 1, is the greatest claim that has ever been claimed. We must recognize Genesis makes, this is not a, this is not a secret. This is, uh, this is object, outright claim that God, very God, created everything, the heavens and the earth. This is why, with, it's not without reason, it's, that it's the very first article of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Genesis claims that the cosmos has a divine design. Look at that again, and we'll come back and celebrate it again in a minute. But in the beginning, God created. Everybody say created. Created. This is a Hebrew word, uh, uh, barashit, I think it is, if I'm saying it right. It doesn't really matter to you too much, but I, uh, but I had to memorize the first uh, paragraph when I took Hebrew. But... Um, it's barashith, but it's a, it's a specific verb that has to do with creating and building that is reserved only for Yahweh. In the, other, in the other parts of the Old Testament, it talks about people making stuff. Noah builds an ark. People build stuff. There's a different verb. When man builds something in the text, there's a different verb used. But when God, but this is unique. This this is a, a verb that is totally uniquely used. That this is what this is something only God can do. This kind of create. It's creation. It's a. It is. This is God, the most brilliant, creative mind, immeasurably creative mind in all of the cosmos. God, the loving, affectionate creator, designs creation. He creates. He imagines, he designs, he builds. And this is where we get the part of where we get the doctrine of creation, ex nihilo, creative out of creation out of nothing. But God does not use existing materials. He doesn't borrow his neighbors two by four. God from his own imagination and ability creates. Therefore, the according to Genesis claims that the cosmos is the result 
of an, an unlimited intellect and boundless affection. The evidence bears this out, and we won't necessarily, don't need to wander down the what would be the many pages of an apologetic and exploring uh, intelligent design. But Genesis claims the cosmos has a divine design, and the evidence bears this out. Now, it's everybody's free choice to, to look at the evidence and see, yep, 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 I see that it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, but I just don't believe in ducks. That's your choice, but it takes a conscious re- rejection of fact, of evidence. Both the claims of Scripture and the testimony of creation beg us to acknowledge that there is a divine, immeasurably intelligent design to creation. Just let me, just let me give you one, just one voice of the many. Sir Fred Hoyle, who was a renowned British astronomer. He said, and he, this guy has more awards and did, uh, got more recognition and did more thinky, starry stuff than I could count. He says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. <laughs> as well as with chemistry and biology. So that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from facts, from the facts, seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. If one proceeds directly and straightforwardly without being deflected by a fear of incurring the wrath of scientific opinion, one arrives at the conclusion that the biomaterials with all their amazing measure of order must be the outcome of intelligent design. No other possibility have I been able to think of. But the implications, the evidence is sitting there, but the implications of this are immeasurably significant. If there is a creator, if there is a designer, if all that is is the result of an affectionate, intelligent heart and mind, if there is a creator, then he has a mind and he has a will. Genesis 1.1 therefore lays down for us what is what we would define as a theocentric worldview, meaning we, it, it, it says that God is the center of, the author of, and the master of all that is. And if he is, then he has a preference. If, if creation has a designer, then that designer has a preference. If he has a preference, then life has a purpose. And if life has a purpose... You have a purpose. We can look at creation then. If if there's a design, that there's a purpose, there's an order, then we can look at creation and we can learn a great deal about the creator. 
That's what Romans chapter 1, that's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived without or being, being understood by what has been made, so that we, they, are without excuse. God has left the evidence of his personhood in creation. In the beginning, God created. God is creator. Second thing I want to emphasize is the question this. How did God create? How did he create? Look again at verses 2 and 3. Now, nobody got nervous last night when they thought, wait a minute, that was just one verse? No, I, we won't go. We're not going to go this slowly through each word. But the, verse 2 says this, And the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, and there was. How did God create? Well, the condition that we see in chapter 2, the condition is that the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness. In the Hebrew, those words are tohu bohu. The earth was, yeah, the earth was tohu bohu. So if you want to look around and think this doesn't make sense, you say, ah, oh, this is a bunch of tohu bohu. Yeah. If you walk in and you look at the kitchen after a big holiday thing, think, oh boy, tohu bohu. It was a formless, it was a desolate emptiness. It was non-functional. It was barren. And the second condition described is that darkness was over the surface of the deep. In the Old Testament, when we hear about this kind of darkness, it usually speaks of something that is evil. It speaks of calamity. It speaks of chaos. In this text, it still tells us that there's an unformed, there are unformed and unfulfilled conditions. There's an unrest. Non-functional, barren, unrest, chaos, dark. That's the condition. But the catalyst, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God. So it's, it's chaotic, it's dark, it's formless, it's empty, it's meaningless on one hand and chaotic on the other. What hope is there? What can be done? But the Spirit of God is hovering. And not just, not hovering acquiescently, not hovering like a wall flower against the wall, but hovering like a 375-pound lineman on the line of scrimmage. Hovering, anticipating, poised, brooding. Then God said, He spoke, he commanded, he sent his word. Seven times it says that he sent his word and it was so. I was meditating on this last yesterday afternoon and just thinking and thinking, oh my word, listen to that. Then God said, how many times does the author want us to hear that God spoke and what happened when he spoke? We must pause and hear this, that Genesis from the beginning, God wants us to know that he is a God who speaks. He's a God who speaks. 
And then when we read the rest of it, now it begins to make sense. We, we, so the first thing we read about God, one of the first things we read about God in Genesis is he's a God who speaks. And then we start reading stuff, and then they, we start reading how God, God, God's frustrated with his people who engage in idolatry. And what's the thing that he keeps pointing out about the idols? They don't talk. Listen, you'll see it in your Bible over and over again. Mute, mute idols. And he makes fun of them for how they can't talk. How they fall over. All the way into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says to the, to the Corinthian church, he says, you guys remember when you were pagans? And what did he characterize them? You were led astray to follow mute idols. You followed gods who couldn't talk. And then how does he describe? What's the first ways that he describes the manifestation of the Spirit? The Spirit who talks. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge and prophesy. He's a God who talks. If he is a God who talks, then there is nothing more valuable than his voice. No wonder Mary sat there. Martha, Mary sat and said, he's talking. If he is a God who talks, then there's nothing more valuable than his voice. And what we see in Genesis is that his voice is life. So from primordial history, we see that the spirit of God, the breath of God, and the word of God are working in tandem they are working in one accord and the spirit breathes out the word of god and from the spirit comes all physical manifestation this is one of the reasons why we intentionally pause and say things like come holy spirit we don't mean that he's not here he was here before us dirt we don't, and we're not giving him permission. We are, we are acknowledging and surrendering to his influence. We want him to come and hover. From the beginning, the Spirit of God is hovering. He is surrounding. He is descending upon the barren, upon the unfunctional, the dysfunctional, the chaotic, and the unfulfilled. And the Spirit of God is bringing the influence of heaven to bear upon it. Heaven has always had an agenda on earth. And then out of the deep, watery chaos comes order and harmony. Out of the deep, out of the chaos, out of the tobo comes order, harmony, life. This is still the work of the Holy Spirit. The good news is that God's spirit still hovers over the formless void of broken lives and over the great darkness in which people find themselves. 
The Spirit of God still hovers over the chaos, over the disorder, over the unrest and the dysfunction. The Spirit of God still hovers with an agenda to bring life and form and order out of chaos and pain and brokenness. What we see in Genesis 1 is that the God of Genesis is not some distant, disinterested deity, but he is a God who is present, hovering over us with redeeming power and boundless love. What did God create? Third thing, what did he create? (laughs) Oh, boy. What did he create? I almost said, I did. I wrote this, and I, when I wrote that down, what did God create? In my mind's eye, I heard several rhetorical answers in the room. I expected someone to say, well, everything. Yeah, and I was going to say, yes. It's in my notes. Everything, yes, everything. <laughs> but then Shelly last night shouted, me. <laughs> what did God create? What do we see? What did God create? Light and life. God created boundaries. Boundaries are God's idea. (laughs) Boundaries. Separating light and darkness and water and land. Boundaries are... Boundaries in Genesis are healthy. (laughs) Boundaries create balance and rhythm. Then he creates fruitfulness. What we see in Genesis 1 is that God speaks and he forms and then he fills. Ooh, that's really good. We're going to read the Bible later. We're going to see that God forms and then he fills. God always builds something and then he fills it. We don't have time to go through all the temple motif in the scripture, but he forms and fills. He forms and he fills in an artistic, intentional order. And there is a progression (laughs) <laughs> there's a progression in the text. And I know some folks say, hey, wait a minute, are this, you know, but how come there was plants on day you know, two and the sun on day four? Stop, stop. No, don't. That, the progression is the, is the progression of life. And we, what we see in the progression of the days is what God is the point of creation. Creation is coming to a crescendo. What did God create? Remember, I had you underline it. We have create in verse 1, and then we have it again in 26. What did God create? There's a progression. There's a direction in the story. There's creation happens, and then we see the work of the Spirit and the Word to begin to form and to fill what was created. There's water and land and vegetation and seed-bearing things, and, and he sets life in motion. Then there's lights in the sky day and night, and he, remember, he doesn't even mention those because he doesn't have any interest in acknowledging pagan deities. The, but even the lights in the sky, they serve as signs for the seasons. Notice that the universe itself is almost a side mention. Not that it doesn't exist or that it's not relevant, but is it relevant? But what's the purpose of creation? The universe itself serves a purpose. They're for signs. They're for seasons. They serve purposes and needs on earth. Earth is the emphasis. But not just earth. There's a greater emphasis still. Verse 26. Then God said, let us 
make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. In the image of God, he, he, called, he drew upon his infinite affection and his boundless intellect. And he made something that did not exist, that was not a product or a, it wasn't a seed after some other kind. It was a seed after his own. <laughs> he said, let's make man in our own image. He created them, male and female. He created them. Look at, listen to the, the, the repeated use of this, of the words here. And he blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. You, will, you not only are you going to be abundant, you are going to have dominion over the earth. Ooh. So from a language and a literary standpoint, this is the peak of the narrative, the repetition, the language. This is the whole point. God made man in his image. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We are image bearers and we alone. Male and female express the image of God, the likeness of God. This is the glory of God. This is the honor of man. Male and female, equal expressions of the image of God. No status there, no order of place. We'll talk about that more in chapter 2. But what we see is that the image of God is, is immediate and it is an, an inherent part of being human. It is not acquired. It is not achieved. It is not earned. It is not a reward. It is assigned. You are made. You are created in the image of God. This forever establishes the sanctity of human life. Next week, it'll also establish the sacredness of human sexuality. But this, that we are made in the image of God, this passage, chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 26, sets something in motion that should have never been changed. It should have never been polluted. It should have never been molested. It should have never been destroyed. It should have never been disagreed with. It should be recognized. It should be revered that mankind is made in the image of Almighty God. And if this is true, then it must, it must govern the treatment of every human being. If mankind is the image bearer, then we must treat one another with a certain holy reverence. Not to deify you, but to honor the one who made you. I see in you. I recognize by faith in you, upon you. You are defined by the image you bear. Not by your ability, not by your performance, not by your contribution. Not by the, the, the presence or absence of melanin in your skin. Not by your socioeconomic status. Not by your ethnicity, your location, your geography. Every human being is divinely infused with immeasurable value. We, and they must be treated as such, yes. including yourself. Yes. To treat someone as less than the image of God is blasphemy, and the same is true of yourself. Yes. It's not cute. Your self-loathing is not excusable. 
And from this point on, from 26 on, that's the story. That's it. The, the rest of the, the Paul Harvey from here is from 26. It's about 26. The whole thing, 26 forward. From this point on, it will all come back to the image giver and the image bearer. I, when, you, when we see idolatry and immorality, it will, always be at, at, it will always be a fundamental rejection of this covenant of the image giver and the image bearer. It will be an attack on this relationship. Sin will fracture that relationship. What we will see is that the image bearer will fall. He will fail and creation will fall. The image bearer will fail, but the image giver will eventually, he has a plan. (laughs) The image giver will redeem the image bearer because God will become flesh and he will restore and he will redeem the image bearer. And then the order will be reversed. It will be restored in like manner. Let me explain what I mean. The story so far is we have creation. In the beginning, God, creation. And then at creation, we have, then we have the spirit and the word begin to work to form and to fill. And then we have the image bearer, but then the image bearer falls. Creation, spirit and the word, working image bearer, he falls. Until God redeems the image bearer. And the new Adam is raised. He is raised. And that same spirit that we read about in verse 1 rests upon this image bearer, Christ himself. And that same spirit he gives to all those who have faith in his name. That spirit becomes the seal upon us who is the down payment unto our day of salvation. Then that spirit begins to work. That's now, now the spirit and the word begin to work. The spirit uh, inspires us to prophesy and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's something happening now and there's something more coming. And we call upon people to put their faith in the image redeemer. (laughs) And the spirit and the word are working and they've been working and the spirit and the word are working today, bringing the influence of heaven to bear upon your life. And he's bringing the influence of heaven to bear upon this world. And then there will come a day in Revelation 21 when there will be a new creation. The beginning will turn around and there will be a new beginning. The end will be a brand new beginning. A new heavens and the new earth. When God says, men, behold, I make all things new. And that's the part of the story that we're in. That same spirit at work now. Bringing the influence of heaven to bear. So how do we summarize? How do we respond to this? Just three simple statements for us to take with us. When we see in Genesis 1 is that God is the creator. God is the author of life. It is all from him. It is all for him. 
Secondly, we see that God created by the work of his spirit and that the creating spirit is the redeeming spirit. The spirit of God still hovers. The spirit of God is still ready to bring heaven's influence upon earth. And God has made mankind in his own image. That your your value in life and your purpose in life is directly tied to the one who made you. And though all have sinned and fallen short of that glory of God, Jesus Christ has come and broken the curse of sin, canceled its power and its penalty in our lives. And because he has been raised from the dead, he has, for he has now reversed the fall. <laughs> and through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the breath of God again. We receive the Spirit of God. We are born again and sealed for resurrection and eternal life. God of creation there at the start
and we give you praise for who you are, for what you've done, for what you're doing, oh Lord, for your immeasurable, matchless love for us. We receive it today and we give you thanks for it. If you have an amen, would you let it out? Would you let God hear us give him praise today? We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Friends, I bless you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Have a fantastic day. We might have a couple of more cookies and coffee in the cafe. Say good morning to someone. And uh, I'm a little bit late, so smile at someone as they're trading places with you soon. Yeah. Uh-huh.